Hi, it's Nahani Rouse. Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive, where gender, history, and Jewish culture meet, and where a strong, thoughtful, and diverse community of Jewish women and their friends find a home. If you enjoy being part of this podcast community, before we start this last episode of our fall season, we have two asks of you. Here's the first. Please help us by sharing Can We Talk with five new people. Send them links to your favorite episodes and encourage them to subscribe. If they like it, they can binge all 70 of our previous episodes. And second, please consider making a donation to the Jewish Women's Archive at jwa.org donate. Your gift will help us continue to document and share stories of remarkable Jewish women. Now, on to the show. We will hear argument this morning in case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democracy. In Dobbs v. Jackson, a case currently before the United States Supreme Court, a woman's constitutional right to have an abortion is on the line. If the court rules in Mississippi's favor, that would effectively reverse the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and leave abortion laws up to individual states, many of which are already chipping away at legal access to the procedure. In this episode of Can We Talk, we return to a time before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal. Underground networks of women, doctors, and clergy members around the country tried to fill the gap. In Chicago, one group of women saw the need and literally took matters into their own hands. People were very upset. They'd say, you know, I have three children. I can't have another one. My, my husband is out of work. Or I'm, I'm only 16 years old. I can't tell my mom. I don't, don't know what I'm going to do. And it was often quite heartrending. Jean Gallitzer-Levy was a member of the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation. The group was better known as Jane. It all started when longtime activist Heather Booth was a student at the University of Chicago. Heather had already been active in the civil rights movement for several years, and she got involved in reproductive rights almost by accident. In 1964, Heather volunteered in Mississippi, registering black voters with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's Freedom Summer Project. When I got back to my campus, a friend told me that his sister was pregnant and just not prepared to have a child, was nearly suicidal, and could I do anything to help? And I hadn't really thought about the issue of abortion before. It was a much more innocent time, and I was a somewhat innocent person. And I went to the Medical Committee for Human Rights as the one place I could imagine going to to find a doctor to perform the procedure. Doctors from the medical arm of the civil rights movement were used to caring for activists who were injured by police during demonstrations. But Heather was looking for medical care that was politicized on another front, a woman's right to control her own body. And I found someone, a remarkable doctor, T.R.M. Howard. He had been a bold civil rights leader in Mississippi 
and came to Chicago when his name appeared on a Klan death list. We never met, but we talked by phone, and he agreed to do the procedure for my friend's sister, and that was successful. And I didn't really think much about it again until someone else called and word had spread and I made the arrangement again and then someone else called and I decided I'd set up a system. The system worked like this. Women would call Heather, usually terrified. She quickly realized that the best way to reassure them was to meet face to face for what she called counseling sessions. She would explain to each woman what to expect from the procedure, how to take care of herself afterwards, and how to pay the abortionist. Heather negotiated the fee with the doctor. Originally it was $500. We brought it down to 300 then 250 Then finally he agreed to routinely do two for the price of one, and then even brought the price down if someone really didn't have the funding. And we obviously wanted to make a good living. He also was in this because he cared, and he saw it as a moral mission. And he saw it probably as an extension of the fight for civil rights. And the procedures continued, and the number of people coming through continued, until there were so many I couldn't really manage it on my own. I was in uh, grad school. I also was working full-time, and I I was expecting at that point. And this is 1968 and realized I needed to turn this over to other people. My name is Jean Gallitzer-Levy. I was a member of the collective, um, the Abortion Counseling Service, which people know as Jane, uh, for about two years. My name is Judith Arcana. And I am a Jane, and I joined the underground abortion service that is now called Jane in the fall of 1970. I was looking for a way to be involved in politics. The feminist movement was a revelation to me. It really changed my life. It gave me a narrative that made my life make so much more sense. I mean, this was before Title IX. There were no athletics for women. There were all of these restrictions and limits on women that were just part of the atmosphere. So feminism just made so much sense to me, and I really wanted to be involved in something. I joined at the invitation of a woman who was a Jane already, whom I met, so to speak, on the phone in the summer of 1970, because I thought at that time that I needed an abortion. And she said, you should really have a pregnancy test. I did discover that, though I was... I think of it as the latest period ever. I was not, in fact, pregnant that time. And so I called her back to say, hey, thanks very much for all the information, the talk. I'm okay. Don't need one. Thank you. And she said, you know, we're going to be taking in new people in the fall. And I think that you might really be interested. And I I thought, really? And then I thought, yeah, actually, I am interested. A friend of mine said that she was working with a group that 
was organized around helping people get abortions. And would I be interested in joining? And I was. So I went to the meeting and we were um, we were told, you know, how the, the thing worked and that we would become counselors. Medicine was so patriarchal. It was so common for doctors to say, well, you know, you don't want to tell the patient because he'll just get upset. Especially women and women and children. You didn't tell them shit. You could tell their husbands things that you didn't tell them. There were still doctors or abortionists who were blindfolding women and you were meeting on a corner and and who were hitting on the women when they were doing the abortions. I mean, it was horrible. You know, quite aside from the fact that sometimes they were killing these women. By contrast, Heather Jean and Judith say that the male abortionists who worked with Jane were professional and caring. But Jane was about to make another radical move. We found out that our main guy, who was just a great abortionist, I mean, just like there are great dentists and great obstetricians and great uh, neurologists, this guy was a great abortionist, highly skilled, very good to the women that he worked with. Um, We found out he wasn't an MD. And so... I remember very clearly a big meeting at which there was much argument. I was on this team, so to speak, in the argument. I said, well, wait a minute. If he can do it and he's not an MD, we can do it because we're smart and we now know a lot about this and we just need the training. So uh, he did teach us. And then the ones that he taught, taught others. So pretty soon he was gone and we were it. What we did, we had a an answering machine that was very big and new then. It was real to real. I mean, it was this monstrous thing that somebody had the room for in their apartment. And that was Jane. That's who you called. When you called Jane, that's what you got was this. And it was a recording, and it asked you to give your name, a phone number, and the date of your last period. People were very upset. They'd say, you know, I have three children. I can't have another one. My my husband is out of work. Or I'm I'm only 16 years old. I can't tell my mom. I don't, don't know what I'm going to do. And it was often quite heartrending. You'd go and you'd listen to the tape and you'd take down all this information. And we did um, three by five cards with each of these things. At a meeting, we would pass around these cards. And everybody would take a card, you know, you'd find, first you'd go through and you'd find the card. It's this nice, it's this nice 30 year old woman. She lives near you. And then the one that was the 15 year old and who, you know, didn't want you to her mother to know. And, you know, that one would get passed around several times before somebody said, okay, I'll take this one. But when we would call them back, that too could be fraught. Um, what if she wasn't alone in the room when she got the call? What if we called and she didn't answer, her mother did, or her husband did, or her big sister, you know, whatever. So it was a very delicate thing, the business of what they said and what we said on the phone. I was on the South Side, so a lot of my uh, counselees were African-American. And, you know, and I sound white, (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, so often they would think, you know, there'd be this sort of suspicious, yeah, what do you want? Because you sound like you're a social worker who's coming in to make trouble. But people were really glad to hear from you once they figured out who you were. And so we, as the person on the phone who was going to make it possible for them to get this abortion, had to provide comfort even in that strange exchange with the machine and then the actual telephones. So it was very important to us that they understand exactly what the procedure was. That we described, you know, the uterus and what we would do exactly step by step, exactly what they could expect. You know, what we wanted to do was make it as unscary as we could. You know, we had to be we had to be, to some extent, anonymous. We were asking them to trust people they didn't know. We were asking them to go to a non-medical setting to do this medical procedure. It was not going to be in a hospital. It was not going to be in a clinic. We had none of those things that both legitimize and are reassuring. So we did, a lot of that was the idea that we could make people feel more comfortable um, with us because we were being very straight with them. And then we gave them, one of the, one of the women would schedule them, and she would give you a date that they would go and a time. And we would give them an address to go to. And the address was <laughs> the front. We had the front and the place. Uh, very imaginative uh, names. When she got there, she would find um, a Jane who was serving like a stewardess, coffee, tea, whatever, you know, and um, helping people be as comfortable as they could be in an extraordinary illegal situation. A lot of people brought their children because they had no place else to bring them. So it was a little bit of a circus. And often people didn't remember what was going to happen and just were nervous. And you'd sort of go through it again. You know, you'd sit or you'd sit with somebody's sister and just, you know, reassure her that everything was going to be okay. Um, And then uh, the driver would pick up, you know, four or five people, women, and drive them to the place. And on the way... Um, She would stop and she would ask for the money. We charged $100. We took anything. We figured if we averaged about $50, we were okay. You know, we covered all of our costs. And we paid ourselves for working days because we felt too many things in the world were run by women who didn't get paid. And that was wrong. And people would hand you handfuls of quarters or they would say I don't have anything and you'd say okay and then you take the money from the next person so then they got to the place and then they would sit and you know it was an apartment I would sit in the living room and wait and the assistant would bring you in and she'd explain what was going to happen and she would put in the speculum, put, give you the first shots of lidocaine, and start the dilation. And then the abortionist would come in, and then the assistant would go and usually sit by the woman's head and hold her hand if she wanted to. 
um, you got some very, very sore hands because people would squeeze really hard. There were different kinds of abortions. The DNC, dilatation and curatage, um, or dilating the cervix and using a curette to scrape out the inside of the uterus. That was the basic. And then the long terms, particularly people who were four and five months, and some, uh, rarely, but some who were farther along, would have an induced miscarriage where the pregnancy would literally be interrupted. So you would um, break the amniotic sac, usually called the water bag, and uh, press all the liquid out. Once these women realized it was going to happen, or right afterwards when it had happened and they weren't pregnant, it was often, really, it was often the first real decision about their lives that they had made. And it was so empowering. And you could see them just glow with it. You know, I I did this. I I just knew I couldn't have a baby and now I'm not going to. We've served everybody, you know, there were white women, black women, everything um, in between. And the age went from really 12, I think was the youngest person to ever, woman to ever come through the service. And she came with her mother and she had been raped and it was horrible. We had a woman who came through, she was 50 and it was like, surprise, no, (laughs) I can't do this. Are you crazy? In the late 60s and early 70s, Several states passed laws loosening restrictions or even legalizing abortion. And people with means could go and get an abortion. And so our demographics changed dramatically. We're much more black and younger. Your 16-year-old cannot get on a plane. She's not to explain to her mom. She's going to go on a plane and go have an abortion. You know, she's just trying to do it under the radar. I had just dropped out of college. I was really lonely and alone and not really connected. And this was exactly what I wanted. It was a chance to really connect with people who cared about what I cared about. It was very exciting. There were uh, a higher higher percentage of Jews in the abortion service than in the, the population at large. At first, I don't think I sort of noticed, but then I got a big kick out of it, you know? I thought, well, look at this. Here are these nice Jewish girls, as the saying goes, and what are we doing? Well, we're committing a a crime in order to do what we think is good for women and girls. Why did we join an underground criminal abortion outfit? You know, what, what is that about? The element of responsibility for the society, of taking on responsibilities beyond the basic, that's part of the deal for Jews. And I grew up knowing that when I was very young. And I thought, well, if I don't believe in God anymore, then am I still a Jew? Well, the answer is yes. And the yes is about this stuff. I did not mind that we were breaking the law because I knew the law was wrong. 
So, well, yeah, who cares about the law? I was 20 years old, and I did not worry my pretty little head for one moment. It never occurred to me that it was dangerous, and I think it was because I was very young and the younger and vulnerable. The moment in my life <laughs> where I discovered that actions have consequences was when we got busted. Chicago News Reader, May 4th, 1972. Seven Chicago women were arrested Wednesday on charges of operating an illegal, low cost abortion clinic out of two Southside apartments. Chicago police learned of the clinic from a woman whose sister reportedly was scheduled to have an abortion there Wednesday and did not want her to undergo the operation. Investigator Theodore O'Connor of the Burnside Homicide Unit said a fully equipped operating room had been set up in an 11th floor apartment at 7251 South Shore Drive. Police said that when they raided the apartment, they found three patients undergoing abortions and seven in the waiting room. I was working the front, and it was a very busy day, and I hear this knocking on the door. So I go to the door, and I open it, and there are the two tallest policemen I've ever seen in my life. and They were just enormous. I think it's a requirement in Chicago if you make the homicide squad that you'd be six foot nine or something. And I looked at them, and I turned around, And I walked down the hall in front of them and I said, these are the police. You do not have to tell them anything. And they arrested me. I was the driver that day. I didn't think I was being followed, but we were, one of our guidelines was to always drive as if we were being followed. And so I was using small streets and turning here and there. I actually got tremendous satisfaction later in court when I heard the police testifying and saying that they had trouble following me, that they, that they lost me several times, I said, yes, I was good at that. They arrested the people at the place. And when they first knocked on the door and it was the police, the people who were in the bedrooms finishing the abortions barricaded the door so that they could finish because they would, otherwise the women would be in jeopardy. So they finished the abortion and, you know, and then the police came in and then they arrested everybody. They put me into a van, you know, a classic police van and put on handcuffs. And then they attached my handcuffs to a hook, you know, inside the van. It was cold in there. And They drove us um, to the women's lockup and we were separated after we were taken out of the van and I was still handcuffed, which really hurts, by the way. So there was this row of cells, two Janes, two Janes, two Janes, and then the seventh Jane of what the media immediately called the abortion seven. To this day, I don't even know where they stashed her. Women are screaming. People are banging on the walls, which are metal, a tiny, filthy little sink and toilet. At some point, I guess it was like two, three in the morning, they came and got me and said that there were lawyers waiting to talk to me. And 
I thought it would be my husband, but he wasn't. He was home with the baby. And um, it was his law partner and two other guys who I knew. Their plan was that I should go downstairs to the night court judge. This was their idea. And they would explain that I was a nursing mother, which was true. In fact, in our cell, I was milking my breasts into that filthy little sink because um, I had been without a baby for many hours. And the, I was like a cow. I was really full of milk. And they said, he'll let you out because you are a nursing mother. And then they finally took me home and I went into the baby's room and he was fast asleep, just being an adorable sleeping baby. We were arrested in May. And through the summer, we we interviewed attorneys and we hired a, a lawyer who was, she was great, uh, Joanne Wolfson. You know, and then we had the preliminary hearing. The state was not in any hurry. Their feeling was, is everybody knew it was in the Supreme Court and that a decision was going to come down. So it came down in January, right? So all that fall, we just diddled around, you know, because it's very expensive to do a trial for the state, as well as for you. And there was no reason to spend that money if the law was going to be vacated. And that's what happened. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. And then we had a big party and it was over. You know, we were doing 25 people a day, four or five days a week. We were in enormous pressure. We were working really hard. And all of a sudden, it wasn't our responsibility anymore. Somebody else could do it. And we were real happy to let somebody else do it. There were others who said, wait a minute, we do such good work. It's valuable. We feel really good about it. The women who come to us feel really good about it. We should keep doing it. But then the prevailing, uh, the prevailing argument that uh, made the decision was when abortion is legal, then we were practicing medicine without a license because abortion had become medicine instead of felony homicide. So then even if you weren't charged with doing abortions, you would be charged with practicing medicine without a license. Today, nearly 50 years since abortion became legal in the United States, it is once again under threat. I am, of course, someone who um, has been expecting Roe to be overturned. I'm surprised it took as long as it's taking. I'll be totally stunned if they don't dump it. The, this particular Supreme Court is like the dream of the anti-abortion movement. As to whether there will be groups like Jane, there already are several groups who are doing things like making sure that uh, women can get medical abortions, that these 
these pills become available. This stuff is getting mailed out all over the place. And it's, that's going to be very big. Every region will have people who are doing abortions underground. They already are, because even though Roe has not been overturned, there are so many places in this country where you cannot get an abortion. The most important thing about Jane is that we had agency. You know, that ordinary women, because we were not, not special or medically trained or we were ordinary women did extraordinary things and 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 you can too people have to pick up the responsibility and do what's right you know the the story about jane just proves that you can do really amazing things by simply deciding that it needs to be done and that you will do it i woke up one bright morning about the middle of may I had some kids and a good old man Things were going my way But I looked at my calendar And there I read my fate Five pounds here and a bigger brassiere I was about seven weeks late Six, four, three, three, eight, four, four Is the number you'll adore The women in the service know what you're calling for they'll give you an abortion no matter what the reason for and six four three three eight four four is a number you'll adore from 1968 until abortion became legal in 1973 around 125 women worked for jane providing safe abortions to nearly 12,000 women. Thank you for joining us for Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. Jen Richler produced this episode. Our team also includes Judith Rosenbaum. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. Thanks to Noah Stoffman for voicing the 1972 newspaper clipping and to my talented cousins Noah Doskal-Samlin and Yoni Samlin for recording the Jane song, which was written by Elizabeth Roberts after the group disbanded. Don't you worry, don't you fret, my friend said to me so plain. I'll give you a telephone number and you can tell it all to Jane. A counselor will call you Just put your mind at rest We'd like a hundred dollars But we'll take your best You can learn more about Jane online at the Chicago Women's Liberation Union Her Story Project. And if you'd like to know more about Jewish women's involvement in reproductive rights, check out our online history course at jwa.org slash events. If you love listening to Can We Talk and want to make sure that the stories of remarkable Jewish women continue to be documented and shared, please remember the Jewish Women's Archive when you make your year-end donations. Go to jwa.org donate to make your contributions. And thanks. Also, please share your favorite episodes of Can We Talk with your friends. If they've never heard the podcast, they have 70 episodes to look forward to. And this episode concludes our fall season. We'll be back with more in the spring. I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. Until next time.